day this week, I was driving into work in the morning, and as I did so, I looked down at my gas gauge, and I noticed that the indicator was getting close to the red zone. And so I said, well, I should stop and get gas, but I think I'm going to wait until lunch, and I'll get it then. By the time lunch came, my plans had changed. I was going out, taking somebody with me. I didn't want to inconvenience this person and stop and get gas, so I thought to myself, well, I won't get it now. I'll wait till I go out to my appointment in West Minneapolis uh, this afternoon. But you know how afternoons get. I, things got real busy. I got piled up, and then I was already late for my appointment, so I thought to myself, well, I'm just going to try to go in the fumes, I guess, and I will go to that appointment, and as soon as I get out of that appointment, I will stop and get some gas. I got to the appointment, and I noticed as I parked that there's not a gas station in sight anywhere. And when I got out of the appointment, I got in the car, and I got on Highway 100 going north, looking for gas stations. There wasn't a gas station in sight. And so I thought to myself, look, if I stay on Highway 100, I know it gets, the traffic gets worse up there north where the stoplights are, and I don't want to risk getting stopped in, on Highway 100 without gas, and so I decided I would get on 394 and go into Minneapolis, because <laughs> that would be faster. This is my logic. And I knew the traffic would be going out from downtown. I'm going in. And so I would be sure to find a gas station. So I pulled off onto 394, only to find that here's one of these entrances that has the two stoplights, one car at a time. And it's already backed up two blocks. And it's about 15 seconds between cars. So I'm starting off my car now, in between every time I move up. Shut the car off, start it up, move ahead, shut it off. You know how that goes. Finally, it was my turn, and I thought, now I'm set, I'm, I'm going to just ease it up into fifth gear, you know, and, and just kind of coast into downtown. And uh, I thought I was home free until I went about a half a mile, and it was bumper to bumper traffic going in, and the right lane that I had to exit onto 94 was just two miles back. And so here I am again, sitting, advancing slowly. You know how it is in heavy traffic like that. And I kept looking at the gas gauge, and the, the indicator's going further and further and further down into the red zone. The little light comes on. Now, when the light comes on, it will flash for a while. When it comes on, pay attention, right? It is on. So I'm trying to figure out what to do, and there's an exit, a Hennepin Avenue exit. And I thought, I'm going to get off so at least I don't get stranded on the interstate without gas. That's embarrassing. So I got off, and I thought, I'll find a gas station here in Minneapolis. So I got on to Hennepin Avenue, but it was 5.30 in the afternoon. Have you ever been on Hennepin Avenue at 5.30 in the afternoon? There were 13,353 cars in front of me, and that doesn't count all the rest of them. There are semi-trucks, there are buses, not just buses, the double things, you know, that block traffic. And the traffic is just going real slow, and my indicator just slipping further and further and further until it was almost to the point I could see black between the indicator and the red zone. And I kept thinking, I am going to run out of gas. There's no way to get out of this traffic. And finally, I see this, this uh, bridge across the river on Hennepin. I thought, I've got to make that bridge. And so I made the bridge. The traffic opened up. 
On the other side of that bridge, there is not a gas station. There is not a gas station in downtown Minneapolis. There is not a gas station on Hennepin Avenue on the north side of that bridge. But I knew where there was one. And so I turned right on University and headed toward 35. And by the grace of God, I made it. I mean, literally, it was running on fumes. I've never put that much gas in my car in the five years I've owned it. And I remembered something my mother always said. Put first things first. I should have gotten gas earlier in the day. The Apostle Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians 14, put first things first. That's a simple principle. But it takes work to make that principle a habit of life. Setting and then maintaining right priorities is one of the most important disciplines of a well-lived life. A friend of mine in ministry likes to say, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, he's right, isn't it? And you have to keep at it. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The fact is that all of us live according to a set of priorities, whether we stop to think about them or not, whether they reflect our confessed values or not, we all live by some set of priorities. In fact, those priorities that we practice reveal what we truly value, don't they? Now for Christians, it's important, it's crucial that our priorities reflect biblical values that please and honor the Lord. That was not the case in Corinth, however. They were living out wrong priorities. For example, as Paul deals with here in this chapter, they esteemed certain spiritual gifts over others. And that was okay, except that they chose the wrong ones to elevate. They chose the sensational gifts that appealed to their carnal attitudes. One such gift was that of speaking in tongues. And so the purpose of this chapter is to demonstrate the inferiority of tongues as compared to other spiritual gifts and to especially prophecy, and then to exhort the Corinthians to reorder their priorities. Now we need to take a time out for a moment. We're going to talk today and next week about the gift of tongues. Was this a legitimate gift? The answer, of course, is absolutely. It was a legitimate gift. Paul never tells them that this was a wrong thing for them to do. He simply says they're placing the wrong emphasis on it. The first occurrence of tongues, of the speaking in tongues, occurred at Pentecost. And as we're going to see next week in particular, its first occurrence relates directly to its purpose in the early church. But understand that Paul does accept this as a legitimate gift of the Holy Spirit, an expression of his life in the church. But there's a second question in our time out that we want to talk about, and that is, was this experience, uh, what was this experience? What was the speaking in tongues? Well, it seems consistent with the language of the Apostle Paul 
that he is using the word glossa, the word tongues here, in referring to a human language that the speaker had not learned. That seems further underscored by what he says in our text today in verses 9 and 10 about languages. Paul uses the word glossa here a number of times and a few other times in his writings. Whenever he uses it, he always gave it the same meaning. It was a human language that the speaker had not learned. Now there was an experience that was common in that day in the pagan groups, in the mystical religions, of speaking an ecstatic kind of language. An ecstatic speech that was indecipherable. And it may be that some of the people in Corinth had plugged into that. But if that's the case, Paul doesn't make that clear in this chapter. It seems to me that he's talking about, rather, the experience that was legitimate of the Holy Spirit of being able to speak in human languages that the writers, the, the, the speakers, rather, had never learned. Now, Paul was a lover of the local church. He spent his whole life planting churches and establishing them throughout the Roman Empire, at least after he got saved. Paul knew the importance of the fellowship, and he knew what was important in the fellowships. Paul knew the first things that needed to be put first. Paul knew the main things that needed to be kept the main things in the church. He knew what the biblical priorities were, and he knew that biblical priorities grow healthy churches. And you and I need to realize that too. Biblical priorities grow healthy churches. You, know, you can grow uh, a congregation. You can grow a crowd using lots of different gimmicks and ideas and teachings. But you can't build a healthy church apart from biblical priorities. That's why it's so important for us to understand what those biblical priorities are. Today I want to urge you to commit yourself to the biblical priorities for this community of believers. Will you do that? I hope that you will. Paul explains to us the first biblical priority in verse 1, in the very first sentence, which is really two words, where he says, pursue love. And so we have the priority of love. Now this picks up the theme from chapter 12, verse 31, where he says, earnestly desire the greater gifts, I show you still a more excellent way to live. And then in chapter 13, he goes on this wonderful digression about love. But now he comes back to his mainstream thought, and he says, now pursue love, yet desire earnestly the spiritual gifts. You see how that knits together with verse 31? He begins by telling us that priority number one in the church is love. Love. And he says we are to pursue it. This word pursue is an intense word. It means to follow after. It means to hunt down. And in a negative sense, even to persecute. For example, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. The word persecute there means hunt down. It's this word. In a negative sense. 
Paul was intense about persecuting the church. He uses the same word in a more positive sense in Philippians 3.14 when he says, I press onward toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press toward the goal. Here's the same word. I pursue it, he says. I give myself to this. Now what he says here is that priority number one in the church is to make it a life habit to intensely pursue love in our relationships. We are to be people who are characterized by selflessness in living and in giving. Just imagine for a moment. Imagine a whole church that really makes this priority number one, where every member of the church sets this as the goal, to live a life of love. How would you describe a church like that? How would you describe a small church like that? How would you describe a cell group like that? I can give you the answer very clearly. It would be this. This people of God is patient. This people of God is kind. This people of God is not jealous. This people of God does not brag and is not arrogant. This people of God does not act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. They're not easily provoked. They do not take into account a wrong suffered. This church does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. This cell group, this small church, bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. This people of God endures all things. That's what it would be like. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be a part of a group that really set this as priority number one? Now, we can't do that for everybody else, but we can do it for ourselves. This priority of love ought to be one that every Christian seeks to place in his life and within his local church. We should ask ourselves questions like, what initiative would love have me to take today? You know, sometimes we look at love as though it's rather benign and, and passive and... It'll just happen. And when it happens, it happens. That isn't the way Paul sees it. He says, you've got to seek after it. You've got to pursue it. You've got to grab a hold of it and put it in place. And so we have to ask ourselves, what initiative does love want me to take towards someone today? Or... What would love insist that I refrain from doing anymore? Who around me needs the gift of love? Am I willing to include others in my circle of friends? Am I showing God's love to those who are different than me? When a group of Christians become so ingrown and enthralled with each other 
that they can't reach out to somebody else, they've lost sight of this priority and have fallen into carnal living. When a small church gets to the point that it says, oh, we don't really want new people, we like each other. And, they, and that small church doesn't go out of its way to greet and to welcome and to embrace new people. It's lost sight of this priority to pursue love. When a cell group gets to the point of saying, hey, you know, we, we've gotten so deep and we've, we've learned to love each other so well, we don't want new people coming in. They've lost it. They have lost it. Never ought we to get to the point that we can't reach out and pursue someone else in love. This idea is so fundamental, it's so badly needed in our churches. Some people say, but I don't like what happened. I wasn't consulted about it. But love does not seek its own. It doesn't care if it's not consulted. It doesn't take into account a wrong. Even a wrong, a legitimate wrong, it doesn't take it into account. It forgets about it. Oh, but this is our space. This is my chair. This is the pew we've always sat in. Is that love? Love doesn't seek its own chair. It's willing to, to give that chair to somebody else. Or it's willing to let somebody else use that room if they need it. But these are the kinds of things that even we Christians justify. These are the kinds of statements that we commonly accept as being, well, that's okay. That's just his personality. That's just their thing. Love doesn't put up with that. Love pursues the well-being of the other at personal cost. And Paul calls us here to pursue love, priority number one in the church. Priority number two is what he says next in verse one. It is the priority of prophecy or proclamation. Notice he says, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. To desire earnestly here is... Uh, a command to the whole church body. Literally, it means to boil over with desires. The idea of being zealous for something. To covet it in a negative sense. He says here that you and I are to make it a life habit. To set spiritual gifts as important, but prophecy above them all. Now remember, he's writing to us as a community, as a church. And he's saying that as a congregation, we are to exalt the proclamation of God's word. The idea of prophecy is not so much foretelling as it is forth-telling. Speaking forth the divine message of God. It's basically equivalent to what we call preaching or teaching. It is the exposition and then the powerful application of the word of God. Paul says here that, that none of the gifts 
should be exalted above prophecy, the proclamation of God's word. That is the priority. And yet, you know, there are things that we today tend to put before the exposition of God's word. One of the big ones is fellowship. Folks, fellowship is important. We all need to connect with other people. And yet I hear sometimes a strain that comes around that says, we don't really want to emphasize teaching in our group. We just want to fellowship together. Does that sound familiar to any of you? The Apostle Paul says that nothing's to be subservient to the proclamation of the Word of God. On the other hand, there are those who who say, would you please stop emphasizing the Bible and doctrine and just talk about practical application? Just give me the how-tos. How do I solve the problems of my marriage and of my life and my family and my work and my money? How do I solve my problems? Folks, I want to tell you something. This is going to be heresy to some people. The exposition of the Word of God comes before its application. Now, please understand, I believe in applying the Bible to life. It needs to be relevant down where we live. But have you ever noticed that the Apostle Paul, whenever he wrote to the churches, always talked about doctrine first and then applied it to life? Let's not get into the trap that is so common in our narcissistic culture as to think, I want only the how-tos. Leave the doctrine out. We must have the doctrine. It must be expounded. God's teaching must be brought to us so that we understand God and we understand ourselves in the world and then, and then, importantly, we can apply it to our lives. And there are places today where the sensational gifts are exalted before the preaching of God's Word, above the preaching of God's Word. There are places where entertainment is more important than the proclamation of God's Word. It's amazing how many Christians say, well, I don't know which service I'm going to go to today because I want to get out in time to see the Vikings. I'm going to go to one service today. I'm going to skip Sunday school because I don't want to miss the Vikings play at noon. Stop and think about that for a moment. Has entertainment become a god to you? Whether it be in a film or it be a on an athletic field? Is entertainment more important to you than the priority of God's Word? What orders our lives? What is it that determines what we do first or second or third? Is it entertainment? And there are places today where you hear social justice talked about rather than the Word of God. Or there are other places where you hear political activism as the main theme of the church rather than the exposition 
of the Word of God, the proclamation of divine revelation. That's why this is so important for us to talk about. Because we live in a day when there are many things put before the Word of God. No wonder Paul said to Timothy 1,900 years ago, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by, by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For, he says, the time will come when they, the hearers, will not endure sound doctrine. They won't put up with it. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn their, away their ears from the truth and will be turned aside to myths. If that was happening in the first century, just think where it's at today at the end of the 20th century. This generation wants its problems solved. It doesn't really care that much about doctrine. And what we need today is the proclamation of the Word of God applied to our lives in a relevant fashion. But it begins with the proclamation of the Word. Well, that brings us to the final priority, and that is the priority of edification in verses 2 through 12. As you allow your eyes to go down through those verses, notice how many times the word edify or some form of it is used. To edify means to build a house. It means to build up the church, figuratively. What is it that edifies the church, anyway? Well, Paul says in this text, tongues do not, unless they're interpreted. He gives five reasons. Verse 2, he says, only God knows then what is said. If a person speaks in tongues without interpretation, only God knows what is said. Verse 4, only the speaker himself is edified because he feels himself being used by God. Number 3, verse 6, he says there's no mutual benefit in the church unless they're interpreted. Number 4, he says the words have no significance. It's like speaking into the air. Verse 9, and the fifth reason that tongues do not edify the church without interpretation is that it makes the family like foreigners, like barbarians to one another. We can't understand each other, verse 11. Tongues do not edify without interpretation, he says, but the proclamation of the word of God does edify. And it exhorts, and it comforts. So make it a priority. Now why does it do this? Why does the word edify? For the simple reason that it's intelligible. To proclaim what God says, everybody can hear that, everybody can understand what God is saying. He says a music instrument is not pleasing unless it's played meaningfully, verse 7. Furthermore, a war trumpet, in verse 8, is useless unless the sound is distinct and certain to the troops. So he says you need the clear proclamation of the word of God for an intelligible message from God. And so what is his conclusion? Look at verse 12 where he sums it up. You also seek 
to abound for the edification of the church, to build it up. Now, Paul's love for the church reflects the love that Jesus had for the church. Where Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. Today, our attitude is, the church has to fit into my schedule. Whatever the church does had better be convenient if I'm going to be involved in it. How unlike Paul and how unlike Jesus, who actually gave his life for the church. How can I build up Jesus' church in love? I want to suggest very quickly five ways. They don't come out of this text, but they come out of the New Testament in its warp and woof. You and I can build up the church, first of all, by joining its membership. As a believer in the Lord, you say, well, where does the Bible command me to be a member? Nowhere that I can find. It simply assumes that that's the normal thing we will do. Just as the Bible does not anywhere defend the existence of God, it simply assumes the existence of God. So likewise, when it comes to membership in the church, the Bible assumes that a Christian will be a member of the church, a member of the body. It is an assumption. Every one of us ought to be a member of a church somewhere. I didn't say an attender. I said a member. One who has committed himself to the church and has placed himself under the teaching and the discipline of the church. That's God's plan. Every one of us. That's how we build the church. Number two, by investing in its ministry. By investing in its ministry. By giving freely and generously and seeing that we're not simply giving to a man or to a man's program. We are giving to God and to God's work in the world. We need to see our giving that way. Thirdly, by protecting its harmony. By doing everything within our own power to see that the church is uh, of one mind. Folks, I want to tell you something. This is going to make some of you mad. We've had more division and more gossip in this church in the last few months than any time since I've been pastor. And some of you have allowed that to happen. If we are going to build this church, then we have to ourselves stop gossiping and we have to confront people who are gossiping. A lie can go around the world seven times before truth gets out the gate. And some of us have promoted that. Some of us have to, to, to look after where there's division in the church and confront it. If we're going to build the church, it means that we protect its harmony. And we take it upon ourselves. It's not somebody else's job. It's my job to see that the body is held together in oneness. Number four, by praying for its maturity. By interceding before God, getting on our knees and praying in the, in the direction of its mission. And number five, by promoting its growth. Its growth downward and upward and outward. Its growth in every dimension. The Bible makes no distinction between growth of maturity and growth in numbers. That is a false distinction. Where the church is growing in maturity and growing in the Lord, it will be reaching out to new people. 
And therefore, we need to promote the growth of the church, have a mindset that values growth. So what's important in the church? Priority number one, love for others. Priority number two, proclaim the word. Priority number three, edify the church. Do everything that I can to build up the church. And when we do that, the church can be healthy because we're following biblical priorities. News commentator Dan Rather has a way of keeping his professional objectives in mind. He says that he has three slips of paper, one in his pocket, one on his desk at work, and one in his billfold. And on that, that piece of paper is the simple question, is what you are doing now helping the broadcast? I would probably answer his question a little differently than he does. <laughs> but I would like to take that question in closing and just apply it to me and to you. And to ask ourselves, is what I am doing now reflecting God's priorities? Is the way that I am living reflecting God's priorities? And if not, if not, then we, we need to put first things first. God help us to do that. Let's pray. Now, Father, I pray that by the Holy Spirit you will simply bring our hearts and our wills to a point of yieldedness and openness to hear your message. And I pray that you will show us what it means to have your priorities in our lives and show us the benefit of that. Show us that it's for our own good that we live that way. Lord, I pray that this week your priorities will be more visible, more apparent in our lives than perhaps they've been this last week. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, may we live out God's priorities this week. Thank you for being with us in worship today. If you're visiting, please come to the reception area in the back where I'll be and some of our other uh, staff and elders so that we can greet you personally. Will you do that? God bless you as you go. I hope that you've had a good day already and that your day will continue to be blessed by the Lord. We're dismissed.